This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of O-Scale Trains Magazine. If you're interested in serious model railroading craftsmanship, then O-Scale Trains Magazine is your source for inspiration. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, the little show with big ideas. I'm Trevor Marshall. Right, Trevor. Our aim is to entertain and inform without keeping you too long away from the workbench or the layout. Hi, I'm Jim Martin, the other half of this bi-monthly bun toss. When visiting our website, be sure to check out the links connected to our featured guests. As always on the Model Railway Show, we have two more thinkers and doers that we'd like you to meet. Later in the show, I'll be speaking with Fritz Milhaupt about an amazing traveling layout that functions as a school for those wishing to learn to operate like the prototype. But first, your modeling may speak for itself, but isn't it time your layout had a voice of its own? Here's Jim with our first guest, Jim Wells. Hobbyists have eagerly embraced sound in their model locomotives, but what of the environment the trains move through? Does the sawmill sit there mute? Where are the sounds unique to that busy port or the fishing harbor or that uh, quiet evening by the feed mill? These ambient sound effects can set a mood and a sense of place that can make a layout fun even when there isn't a train in sight. Now, you'll recall on the previous episode of the Model Railway Show, Professor Kleisler of Sydney, Australia, spoke glowingly of Fantasonic's engineering. That's the uh, California company that assisted with his layout sound effects. I've been fascinated with the Fantasonic's approach to layout sound and to sound miniaturization for quite a while now, so it seemed completely timely to get in touch with Jim Wells to talk about his company and his scratch-built approach to providing ambient sound. Now, a bit of background on Jim. He comes from a family that was both musical and into model railroads. Jim has worked for years in the sound industry as a musician and sound engineer in recording studios at concert venues. In the 80s, Fantasonic's Engineering was formed to provide traveling sound effects to theme park displays, and the rest, as they say, is history. So, Jim Wells, welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, Jim. And I guess we have to give a shout-out to your good wife, Christy. She's an important part of the company, too, right? She's my better half. I've always been supportive in all of this insane stuff that I've been working in over the years. Where would we be without them, right? As always, we hope our listeners have first visited the Fantasonics uh, Railroad Magic website. It's listed in our episode guide. That way, you have a better idea of just what it is we're going to be discussing here. And we hope that you have actually listened to some of Jim's manufactured sound effects while visiting the site. So let's get into the thing, Jim, that fascinates me most. And that's the way you, in your words, scratch build your sound effects. You don't actually go out into rail yards or nature or factories to record uh, finished sound effects. You mix them up in your studio. Why is that? There's a lot of reasons. Generally, you know, I want to have individual control over each sound. That way I can mix them relative to each other. If you just go out and make a field recording, everything's set the way it should be. And field recording is tough. It's difficult to get a clean recording. There's somebody asking you what you're doing or a bird that is way too close or there's a lot of things that can be wrong. Mainly I'll use a field recording just like people would use photos. They'll go out online and get photos of a prototype and they'll use that for research, but they don't use the photos to build a scale model. They'll go ahead and scratch build a miniature model in the visual image and I do the same thing. One thing that's going to be a constant theme it is with me. There's no difference between building a scale model in the visual image and building that same model in the oral image. Okay. There's always a direct counterpart between the two images. And, you know, being a model railroader all my life, I've gotten to where I scratch build pretty much everything. And it's the same thing with sound. I just like to scratch build things. It's so much easier and better. And that way, if 
I need to turn something up and not everything up, I can turn it up individually and like that. Did the digital sound recording revolution happen just in time for Fantasonics, do you think? Can you imagine yourself um, cutting and splicing audio tape to do this? I don't have to imagine that, of course. I came up through the analog world, and I'm actually grateful that, you know, I had a background in, because everything we do in the digital domain is just a digital way of doing the same things that we did back in the analog days. But editing but, is yeah, much easier, right? Oh, well, absolutely. Cut and paste is so much better than a splicing block and tape. You bet. <laughs> I remember trying to splice damaged tapes together during commercial interruptions. and. <laughs> Gives a whole new meaning to the word stress. Well, Jim, when I listen closely to the component sounds at a louder volume, some of them don't seem to belong. Yet, when I turn the volume down to your recommended levels, it all seems to fit. Can you explain how you are messing with our oral perceptions here? It's something you call scale magic imaging. What is that? Well, necessity being the mother of invention, when I first got into this, I had no idea of how to miniaturize sound. So it's just mainly trial and error and what you stumble into by ear. You know, I've been stumbling around in this long enough now that I have, you know, my, my little magic skill modeling tricks and tips and all of that. But generally, just a matter of knowing your prototype. My approach is exactly the same as, as in building a model in the visual image. For example, if I build a model of a structure, I can build it with every little super detail and the, all the weathering and everything is perfect and it's just a wonderful model. If I set it on a piece of plywood, it's still a beautiful model, but it's not as believable. If I build the scenery around that model that fills up your field of view, then it's more believable because it's in context. And basically, that's the same thing that I'm doing. The scale magic imaging is basically just building the scenery around the sounds. Most model railroaders just think in terms of one sound at a time. If they get into the audio editor, and very few do, they'll put a collection of full-scale recordings together. That's fine, but it's not just the individual sounds or the composition of the individual sounds. It's building the scenery around sounds, giving the sounds a sense of place. And that either happens on purpose, either you build it on purpose, or it doesn't happen by accident. Okay, I think I understand what you're trying to tell me here. Would you call then your sound effects subliminal? They're not really in your face like you might do with a field recording. As you say, yours work best at a very low level. I wouldn't call it subliminal so much as just trying to mirror the prototype. Again, it's just the same as, you know, the more you understand about the prototype and the visual image when you're building a model, the better the model. And the same thing, uh, most of us don't pay any attention to what we're hearing. Most of the time, we're hearing all the time. The ears never blink. But we don't pay attention to most of it. If it's something that's constant, we'll tune it out. It's still there. It's still audible, but we don't pay any attention to it. I wouldn't exactly call it subliminal, but, you know, if, if sound is applied properly, people won't question that it's fake. It is fake, but people won't question that, you know, and that's one of the reasons you turn it down. There are reasons why it might sound bad if you turn my sound up. First of all, I build it at scale volume levels. When I'm working, you know, I have to sit here and strain and listen to it just like anybody else, <laughs> uh, you know, because it shouldn't be loud. It shouldn't be out of scale. We use phase canceling to force sounds away from the speakers. You don't want the speakers to be obvious. And that phase canceling, if you turn it up too loud, it could just cancel out altogether. Sounds 
don't usually disappear, but they'll sound weird. They'll sound uh, grainy or fuzzy or whatever, and that's happening in the air around the speakers. It's hard to wrap your mind around something you can't see, but the, the fact is is the scale model is what I'm doing in the air outside the speakers. I think I'll stick to the, the notion sound. of magic here. You know, The magic is is that it sounds like it's doing things that it actually can't possibly be doing. If a sound sounds like it's three feet away from the speaker and not coming from the speaker that it's actually coming from, it's kind of an illusion, and it's, you know, it's kind of magical. And, and sound just, it's one of those things where if it's applied properly, it almost will be subliminal. People will take it for granted that it's right. Yeah. It's just when, when sound calls attention to itself, and there are times when you want it to do that. But most of the time, you don't want it to call attention to itself. You just want it to fill in some of the blanks in your imagination. Do you have a leg up as a musician? <laughs> Could a non-musician do what you do? Or do you, does being a musician give you a special understanding of this? My musical background is there, and so absolutely it's been very helpful to me and all the experience that I've had with every kind of musical instrument every kind of music genre certainly that helps train your ears but anybody that wants to listen to their prototype and understand what it's doing could do what I'm doing. I've got to say I've trolled through a lot of your sample sounds the one that impresses me the most is the sawmill I have no plans for a sawmill in my layout but this makes me want to go out and buy a sawmill I think it's really (laughs) clever. I was just going to say that was entirely scratch built every individual sound in that scene. I never went to a sawmill. Mm-hmm. I actually had scheduled several times to go up to a sawmill up in uh, Oregon, and they were going to roll out the red carpet for me and run all the machines individually and everything. Every time we had it scheduled, it rained, and the roofs were tin roofs on this sawmill, and there was just no way that <laughs> I could do any field recording at all. No. So I bought their video, and I watched the video, and that was my research. So when you set out to create a new sound environment for your ever-growing catalog of effects, what's sort of creative process do you go through? Generally, what happens is somebody calls me and says, I need this for my layout. And so there's a prototype scale model scene that I'm building to for a custom client, and their layout scene dictates what I need to do. It's really interesting because the client is paying me to do this work. I'm doing the work and making a million decisions for the client, but the fact is it's the layout's sound. And so I let the layout scene, if they can send me pictures, plan views, and then I just pick their brains and and find out what it is that they imagine their sound should be. You did custom work for Professor Kleisler down in Sydney, Australia. Was his Brooklyn 3AM layout any kind of a special challenge for you? You know, it was a special challenge for him because his visual modeling is so amazing. And of course, the theme of that module, really, I have to say this in all fairness, the professor did his own sound work. I did give him a couple of audio files along the way, and I think he used a city background sound file of mine. But mainly the way I helped the professor was he would call me sometimes in the middle of the night for him and sometimes in the middle of the night for me when he was just you know spinning around and I was able to recognize some of the mistakes that he was. It's only natural to try and work in a miniature sound field based on what we think of normally as stereo and and music and full scale sound and that can be a slippery slope. Almost everything that I do when I'm building scale sound is something I avoided, built the whole career avoiding 
<laughs> I deliberately introduce noise distortion sometimes to give a little bird some throat. Anything that you can do to caricature sound and make it sound big when it's not loud. Almost everything that you would intuitively think about sound, you just kind of... In fact, if somebody had a background in music or audio editing, it would actually be a disadvantage. That's experience talking. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, I think we have to move on here, Jim. We've spent some time discussing the art of what you do, but you, hardware is also required. All of your sounds are available on CD, so it's simple as putting a CD player under the layout and going with that. Exactly. Ready to run. But beyond that, you have something called the Dream Machine, which offers quite a bit more flexibility. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? First of all, that's a Pricom design product. And I'm going to take two seconds here and tell you a little backstory. Bob Scheffler is Pricom Design. And Bob Scheffler is the reason... Uh, one of the biggest reasons that we have video on demand. Bob is just a genius. I met Bob through the Yahoo Layout Sound Group. I had been dreaming of a player that had no moving parts other than electrons that I could use instead of CD players. Up until that point, this was about seven, eight years ago. Christy and I were at O Scale West here on the West Coast, and a couple of guys walked by our little table and backed up, walked backwards, and we got to talk, and turned out it was Nick Thompson, who is an O-scale ON30 logging modeler with his son Joseph and also just happens to be the head audio guy at Apple. And so I asked Nick if the technology had finally gotten to a point where a player, like the Dream Player, would be something practical. And he sat down on a napkin right there on the spot and started saying, well, you could use this chip, you, you know, you could use this and that. And he manufactures names, part numbers all off the top of his head. Anyway, I announced that in the Layout Sound Group. Bob Scheffler had joined the Layout Sound Group, and I had kept referring to it as a dream circuit. Christy used to say, oh, God, here comes Jim's I have a dream circuit speech again. But, you know, I'd been dreaming about it for a long time. Anyway, to make uh, too long story short, Bob had an idea for a player in his mind before I ever came along, but I got a chance to work with him. And one of the best experiences of my life, Bob's absolutely a genius, and he's got a bunch of new products coming out this year. They're going to introduce them in Grand Rapids at the NMRA convention. Wow. I wish we had more time right. to go into this. I think what we'll do is we'll just tell people to keep watching your website on all of these developments. Jim, is that fair? Well, enough? absolutely, and yeah. I can send you some links and things, but I just wanted to tell you about that to kind of pique your curiosity. You've got me going. About Pricom. Bob is one of the best things that's ever happened to Model Railroader. He's right up there with Bob Jacobson as far as I'm concerned. And I'll just quickly mention <laughs> that there's an add-on to this Dream Machine that allows sounds to follow you around the layout. I think we'll just have to leave it at that. I did want to ask you sure. one quick question before we say goodbye. Any thoughts on sound etiquette at train shows? It seems to me too many people run everything too loud at these shows. Sure. And, and you know, you, you work hard to put sound and you spend extra money to put sound in a locomotive. Uh, very few people actually put it in their layout, but, you know, it's something that you've worked hard on, and you want people to be able to hear it, and it's a noisy environment. The best approach for all of that that I've ever heard comes from the Chicago Model High Railers. These are three-rail guys, very serious modelers, but they do run the tin-plate trains, which are noisy in themselves. But anyway, it's a larger scale, and those layouts can really bark, and they have what they call the eight-foot rule, and it's really genius in its simplicity. If you can hear the locomotive clearly at eight feet, it's too loud. And part of the beauty of that is that it's self-adjusting. If the show 
floor is really loud, then a lower volume won't be audible at eight feet, so you get to turn it up. If a show is quiet, you'll have to turn the volume down not to hear it at eight feet. But that eight-foot rule, and, you know, if you want to make it fair and square, just pull a couple of people out of the crowd and say, can you hear that locomotive plainly? If the answer is yes, turn it down. But there's no math, no DBs, no meters, no rules and regulations. It's just a matter of being courteous. Clever. Which is inherent in the eight-foot rule. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jim, I wish we could go on forever here, but it's been a treat talking with you. So thanks for joining us here. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you so much, Joe. I appreciate it. Jim Wells of Fantasonics Engineering has joined us here on the Model Railway Show. Thanks, guys. Were you folks in the audience aware that subtle background soundtracks were running under that interview? That's Fantasonics Engineering at work. You'll also want to check out Jim Wells' unique workbench photo in our photo gallery. You know, Trevor, back in the 60s, some Puget Sound modelers out on the West Coast added sound to their traveling layout, but they had to use reel-to-reel tape recorders. We've come a long way from those pioneering efforts. We sure have. You think about those reel-to-reels being so big, and now it all fits on a little microchip. (laughs) Indeed. Well, we hope you're following the links beside our interview postings and that you'll take the time to listen to some of the sound effects available for sampling on the Fantasonics website. They're like potato chips. It's hard to stop after the first one. And if it's been a while since you examined the nooks and crannies on the Model Railway Show website, feel free to look around and check out the latest photos in our Flickr gallery or take a stroll through our swag shop. It's Trevor's turn now to say hello to our next guest. Fritz Milhaupt belongs to a group of itinerant teachers whose classroom is a remarkable traveling layout. Model railroading is a hands-on hobby. For example, there are plenty of articles and books that explain how to make a model tree, but if you really want to learn how to do it, you have to roll up your sleeves, get dirty, and build one. That hands-on approach is fine for small things like trees, but how do you learn about something that requires an entire layout to accomplish? For example, how do you learn about prototype operations and how to translate them to a model railway? Attending operating sessions has been the traditional way to do this, and it works well if one can visit layouts that are designed with operations in mind. But if you can't make it to such a layout, what do you do? Well, a group of operations enthusiasts in Michigan might just bring the layout to you. It's called the Operations Roadshow, and it's a hands-on learning experience that uses a large exhibition layout built for the purpose. The HO layout has appeared at a number of NMRA national conventions since it debuted in Toronto, Canada in 2003, and dozens of hobbyists have benefited from the clinics it enables. We will have a link to the Operations Roadshow website on our website, so be sure to check that out. But to tell us how it works, I'm pleased to welcome one of the Roadshow's crew to the Model Railway Show. Fritz Milhaupt joins us from his home in Michigan. Fritz, welcome aboard. Well, thank you, Trevor. Glad to be here. Now, can you give me a capsule history of the Operations Roadshow? How did this get started? This was originally the culmination in the really fortuitous coincidence of a couple people coming together with the same idea. Our particular core group of five people only got interested in operations starting around 1995 when we had our first exposure to it. And in the years that followed immediately, we were fortunate in operating on other people's layouts to meet a great variety of other people who were into operation. One of them was the late Bill Jewett of the Operation Special Interest Group. In 1997, while operating over on the Atlantic Great Eastern, we were having a conversation in our downtime between assignments, and he mentioned that the OPSIG had liked the idea of setting up a portable layout to teach timetable and train order. 
our particular group having been into operations only about two years and still kind of in the fervor of the new convert, thought, you know, this might be something we could do. Our core group had had a lot of experience with portable layouts, having been part of a modular group that we had formed eight years previously. Uh, What we decided to do was to take the elements of the layouts we most enjoyed operating on and try to set up a layout we could take around to demonstrate this form of operation. We have developed our own flavor of timetable and train order, which is based on a, an interpretation of timetable train order as practiced through southern Michigan and northern Indiana on several layouts we've operated on. We sat down, thought about how we we're going to do this, and we ended up doing build, designed the layout backwards. We decided what operating features we wanted on the layout. Figured we wanted you know, towns at a particular distance. We wanted particular types of industries. And we wanted something that would be relatable to where we were from. So we chose to build something that would have been reasonable for about a 300-mile radius of Detroit, which is where we're largely based, and set up the characteristics we wanted for each town. Once we'd done that, we actually went around and kind of shopped for a prototype to model. So you backed into the Wabash then? Well, yes. And it had kind of an inside edge because the Wabash has been one of my interests for modeling. And one of the members of our core group had actually worked on the Wabash for a couple summers while he was in school in the early 60s during the last days of the Wabash. Let's talk about the Operations Roadshow itself because it's uh, obviously the, the layout is, it's a tool to teach people about timetable and train order operations. So how does that work exactly? How do you organize these classes? Well, what we've done is we have set up a program where each session that we offer is three hours long. The first 25 to 35 minutes is a basic introduction to timetable and train order operation. We show you how to use the timetable. We explain the basic rules so that you can make that all-important decision of, should I leave this siding and head out on the main line? And if I do, am I going to get myself into trouble facing off on another train? Uh, We've put together a pamphlet, which is available on our website, that explains a lot of the actual basic decisions and procedures involved in actually running a train under timetable and train order. And we give that out also at the beginning. And that's part of our our basic program. So once we've done that, we then have about a two and a half hour operating session on the layout. And we usually provide a a large squad of docents to help out. We send our crews out as two-man crews, conductor and engineer. So you've got two heads working on a problem rather than just one. So they get to compare notes on the things like the timetable and what rights they have to move and stuff like that and then decide whether it's safe for them to venture out onto that main line. Yes, that's pretty much the paramount consideration there when you're running TT and TO is, is it safe for me to move? Now, when I look at timetable and train order layouts, layouts that are designed for this, one thing that comes to my mind is that they tend to be huge because I think of things like Bill Darnaby's Maumee route and you've mentioned the Atlantic Great Eastern, which is a, it's a modest size layout, but it's not terribly complex either. So the reason that this is done is because they need these long spaces between the towns of just single track running so that people get a chance to rack up a bit of mileage and read their train orders and figure out what they can do. How does that translate to the layout that you've built? Can you describe the layout for us? Well, it's that distance is a critical element also from a dispatching standpoint because you can't compress the amount of time it takes to actually write out an order and distribute it. Right. So that also has the dispatcher under something of a time constraint. Of course. What this ended up doing was it informed our design decision. We wanted to have somewhere between half a dozen and a dozen towns and getting as much of a run in between towns as we could on a layout that would fit into a standard 30 by 60 foot hotel conference room. 
The idea behind that would also be a minimum of three or four typical train lengths between towns at absolute minimum. And for the purposes of this and to keep it manageable, we decided our maximum train length was going to be about 15 cars. One of the advantages of that also being is it'll reduce the amount of rolling stock we had to acquire for the project. Yes, absolutely, because you need quite a bit to do this too, I imagine. Uh, Yes, currently we're taking out over 400 cars with us each time we take the layout out and about three dozen locomotives. Wow. How many people does it take to make all this happen? Because you just mentioned 30 by 60 foot conference room that you could fit into. That's a pretty big layout you're filling that space with. Its extreme dimensions are 25 by 54 feet and it breaks down into 35 modules. And we do this all with a core group of five people who are pretty much the prime stakeholders in the layout. Plus whoever is willing to volunteer and help us out when it comes time to come out and set up. For example, we went to Hartford in 2009. We had our largest crew ever. We had a core group of five people plus four modelers that we had brought along from our other modular club here in the Ann Arbor area. Plus there were uh, four volunteers provided by the convention committee and by the OPSIG. And uh, that was our fastest setup ever at I think about 13 hours. Wow, that's dedication right there. That's from backing the trucks and the trailers up to the loading dock, hauling it up into the meeting room, and all the way to being able to actually turn the throttle for the first time. Now, you mentioned Hartford. We talked about Toronto. Where else has the roadshow appeared then? Well, we've shown the layout in Cincinnati in 2005, and we also had one operating session here in our own backyard for the convention in Detroit in 2007. We were a little hampered on that one by the fact that about three-fifths of our crew was involved in actually staging the convention itself. So it rather limited their availability for us to hold sessions at our home base. The next setup we're going to have will be in Grand Rapids, Grand Rails 2012 this summer. And then we're anticipating that we'll probably try to take the layout out to Cleveland in 2014. Excellent. Now, how has this been received? What sort of feedback are you getting from students and from showgoers for bringing this out? Once people see what we're doing and realize that we're going to help them through this, it's a very low-stress way of learning, a fairly complex way of operating people have just been very receptive. Uh, We've had people coming on and and operating at conventions who've been pretty much just beyond the train around the Christmas tree stage, all the way up to uh, one gentleman who was a a dispatcher for Metro North. And all of them seem to have enjoyed the experience. I don't think we've really heard anything that's negative about it. We've gotten some feedback we've been able to use to improve the program and the process. In fact, I think one of the earliest lessons we learned after the Toronto convention was that a lot of relative directions and locations that we took for granted, we couldn't assume that people would understand. For example, we know that we're modeling a stretch of the Wabash between Peru and Lafayette, Indiana, which is north central Indiana. And we can then take it for granted that anything going to St. Louis is going to go west. Well, if you are not terribly familiar with the Midwest or as one of our attendees was from the Netherlands, you know, that's not a natural assumption. Sure, absolutely. Yes. And of course, at an NMRA convention, you do get people from all over the world as well as all across North America. So it can't always be easy turning people loose on a layout of this size. I mean, it represents a huge investment in time, effort, money. Why do you do this? Is it the satisfaction of helping educate others about operations or does it help you understand it more for your own hobby or is there another reason? What do you get out of it as the presenters of this program? Well, we do get a lot of satisfaction out of training people. And there's also a little more selfish motive too, is that the more people that there are out and about who understand timetable and train order, the greater likelihood that one of them is going to go out and build a layout 
that will support that. And hey, that's another place we can go and run. But also, uh, it's helped us develop our own local operating crew. Between conventions, we do keep the layout set up uh, about 10 miles outside of Ann Arbor and invite groups over for operating sessions and have a regular operating crew we can rely on. But you, know, you mentioned the investment of time, effort, and money. We've found that people tend to be very, very careful when running on other people's layouts. I think we've only really lost one piece of equipment in all the times we've been out. And just find people tend to be very respectful. That's great. I think this is a great idea. And when I was reading about it, I thought this is something that other modular groups could take advantage of. They could do this sort of thing in their own home territory, because obviously you're in Michigan, someone down in Florida might not get a chance to get up and run on your layout if there was a group in Florida or in California or up here in Canada or over in Europe. They could do this type of thing. I think it would provide more engagement for the people who are part of the group, too, because instead of just you know, putting together a modular layout and then running trains on it to just to, you know, have them chase each other around the loop and keep people amused at a show. They're actually getting involved and doing a real operating session right there with members of the public. Do you have any advice for groups that would want to tackle something similar, either in terms of the layout construction or maybe in terms of how you organize the classes or even the sort of commitment that the members of the group have to give? The key thing I would suggest is only design what you can support. This 25 by 54 foot layout is about the maximum that our merry band plus the volunteers who come by can set up, display, and tear down and take home within the course of a week. And that's the major reason why we tend to take this only to events the scale of the NMRA National Convention. The 12 to 17 hours it's taken us to set up the layout, you know, followed by seven hours to tear it down at the end of the week, pretty much has us wanting to maximize the amount of time people can run in the middle. Sure, you don't want to take it to a weekend train show because you'd spend your whole time setting it up or taking it apart. Yeah, yeah sadly, we've had to turn down a lot of requests for that. And as much as we would love to be able to, there's the amount of work involved is just too great for a, a weekend setup. But you also have to look in terms of you know, what you have available in crew to handle it what do you have available to transport the layout when we take the layout out we have to rent a 20-foot box truck and then we have two trailers that we haul behind pickup trucks to take the thing out also you have to have the technical expertise to keep the layout in good operating order because as much as it is important to have a well operating layout when you have guests over for just a weeknight operating session when you're asking somebody to give up three hours of their convention time, you have to make sure the layout's going to perform. I guess that's one of the reasons that when you were looking at prototypes, you stuck it to the diesel era just because the equipment is so reliable. Oh, yes. Oh, a huge difference. You mentioned that you're going to be at Grand Rapids this summer, so that's great. I hope a lot of people get out and see this. And I'm really impressed with what you're doing. I can't wait to see it again. Thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show to talk about the Operations Roadshow. Well, thank you, Trevor. Fritz Milhaupt has been described the Operations Roadshow, an exhibition layout that allows showgoers to gain hands-on experience about all aspects of prototype layout operations. Thanks, guys. Trevor, I marvel at the infinite number of ways this hobby manifests itself. I guess it will never run out of ideas as long as there are guys like Fritz and the other members of the Operations Roadshow finding ways to share the hobby with others. A reminder to listeners that if you're going to the NMRA National Convention in Grand Rapids, Michigan this summer, you can see the Roadshow in person and even sign up for a session. 
Check our website, themodelrailwayshow.com, for a link to the Operations Roadshow for details. And check us out on Facebook. A reminder, too, the best way to listen to the show is by signing up for a free podcast subscription. You can find us on iTunes, podcast.com, and podfeed.net, and you'll never miss an episode. Trevor, time to cue the theme music. Will do, Jim. Well, next time out, we'll have a couple of guests, both of whose modeling interests comfortably straddle the Atlantic. I'll be chatting with none other than Ian Rice, the well-known British author of track planning books for small spaces, and Jim's guest, Brian Scase, will discuss the challenges of designing layouts in the larger scales. Our thanks to music director David Woodhead for our catchy theme, to Otto Vondrack for our most excellent website, and to Chris Abbott for catching and killing the tech gremlins. And as always, a shout out to Train Life, where you can find all of our archived episodes and catch up on what you've missed. Till next time, I'm Jim Martin. And I'm Trevor Marshall. Thanks for listening to the Model Railway Show. Forgot I had a line in there. <laughs> uh, another edit.